DW Living Planet. Hello, welcome to Living Planet. I'm Charlie Shield. This week on the show, we hear about Ghana's second-hand car problem. We see scrap being imported in the name of vehicle, just because we are poor and we cannot buy brand new vehicles. We also talked to transport sustainability researcher Festival Godwin Boatin about what reform could look like in the second-hand car industry. In the end, simply transferring faulty, dirty, unsafe vehicles you know, elsewhere. If you transport it from US to Ghana or wherever, you still undermine you know, global and local goals to move forward in safe and low emissions transport. We all share the same goals one way. So the problems you know, affect you know, everyone else. And later on, we visit Norway to find out who's for and who's against the country's plans to mine the deep sea for minerals. We need to make some really tough decisions uh, as a society. We cannot not look into the opportunity uh, of conducting deep sea mining if that can be done in a sustainable manner. All that coming up on Living Planet. Do you know what happens to your old car when you get rid of it? Most cars only live to be about 10 to 15 years old. After that, if you live in a wealthy country in the global north, about 90% of the time, that used car will go off to be recycled for scrap materials. The other roughly 10% are shipped overseas to low-income countries in Africa, in Latin America and Asia, where they get a second life on the roads. And experts predict that that's only going to increase in the coming years as people swap out their gas-fueled cars for electric ones. And one major destination for cars beyond their best years is Ghana. The used car industry there is credited with creating a lot of jobs along the supply chain and giving people access to cars who can't afford to buy new ones. But it's certainly not without its problems, the harmful environmental impacts being one of them. Isaac Kalaji brings us more from Ghana. I am standing in Abosokain, a local market in Ghana's capital Accra. It's noisy and chaotic. This is the largest trading center for new and used spare parts of all kinds of vehicles in Ghana. Many of the imported spare parts here are from American, European, Japanese and Korean cars. Sampana is in his late 40s and trades in vehicles and spare parts at this market. It has been his main source of income for over 10 years. I import the spare parts mostly from Korea. I often go there myself to look at the goods carefully in order to bring in the best quality. When I bring the spare parts, I sell most myself and outsource the rest to other retailers. Sampana is one of the over 5,000 traders at this automobile and spare parts hub. They serve millions of car owners in Ghana who come here for one item or the other for their broken vehicles. But this spare parts hub thrives mostly because of the importation of hundreds of thousands of used cars from Europe, Japan, and the U.S. to West Africa every year. 
a practice that some experts say is not only a safety hazard, but also a concerning source of environmental pollution. Over 12 kilometers away from the Abusokan Trading Center is Tema, the import hub of Ghana. Most of the used cars in Ghana come into the country through the port in this part of the city. The United States, Japan, Canada and Germany are the leading suppliers. According to a report from the UN Environment Programme, of the 40 million cars that were exported from the EU, the US and Japan between 2015 and 2018, almost half went to Africa. Steven Asari is a used car importer. It's a business he took up after graduating from university six years ago. Okay, so we buy from either Canada or US. And then we, when it comes here, we pay duty. And then there's much more things. We do maintenance. Even if you buy um, brand new cars, um, at times you have to go to the shop and then you run maintenance. Okay, so that is what we've been doing. We bring it here and then small, small dentists on the car. Either we respray the car. And then if it is shocks and then anything damaged on the car, we buy a new one and then replace it. Some of the imported cars bought by dealers like Steven have been recovered from accidents. Others are considered end of life. And once they arrive in Ghana, they get repaired for resale on the local market. Ghana imports about 100,000 vehicles every year and an estimated 90% of them are already used. The demand for mobility keeps growing, but the income levels of many Ghanaians are very low, and many of them cannot afford a new vehicle. So the used car industry comes in handy for many, including Elvis Ajiti. He is a university lecturer who recently bought an imported used vehicle himself. Well, it's about affordability. Um, most of these brand new vehicles are beyond the capacity of the ordinary Ghanaian and so you can't you can't afford it they are way too expensive and so the other option it leaves you with is to then have a used vehicle which is of a certain uh, standard a certain quality to use for your day-to-day -day operations but Ghanaian environmentalist Justice Adoboy doesn't see many positives from the importation of used cars the journalist and writer says Ghana is just becoming a dumping site for the rest of the world's old cars, many of which are no longer roadworthy in their countries of origin. We see scrap being imported in the name of vehicle just because we are poor and we cannot buy brand new vehicles. We import some of these scrap metals that come and some of them don't last five years and then they break down. There are more negatives, Adoboy informs me. The city's yearly air pollution levels are 11 times higher than the World Health Organization's recommended air quality standard. And an estimated 40% of this pollution is related to vehicle transport emissions. Adoboy said this is something we need to talk about. These old vehicles emit a lot of smoke into the atmosphere. And when you look at the figures of air pollution in Accra, it's very high. It's so high. And most of it comes from, you know, these old vehicles that are emitting so much 
fume into the atmosphere. And so both in terms of atmosphere and environment perspectives, these constitute dangerous hazards to the country. The safety of these imported used cars is also another issue. Most of the cars imported into Ghana don't meet the European safety standards and many don't even have roadworthy safety certificates. They break down very often due to substandard spare parts. For McLean Bois, who is an auto mechanic, it is always a challenge fixing these used cars when they break down. The old one, because of the usage before they bring it, there is a lot of challenge on, on that car, but the new one is better than the old one. So the old ones that they bring, that they use cars, what are the problems with it? Uh, most of the problems uh, attempts they deal with the like check system or maybe fuel system. Uh -huh. Normally that uh, uh, old cars then will check and will solve that problem and will be using it. But why, why, why do you prefer to work on brand new cars than the used cars? Uh, the used cars, you don't know how much or how long the person used it out there before you bring it. But the new one, we bought it here, we know how it is and we program everything. Ghana is yet to properly regulate imported spare car parts that would make sure a certain standard of quality is enforced. Although Mauritius and Morocco have both successfully banned imports of cars older than three and five years respectively, when Ghana announced a ban on the importation of cars older than 10 years in 2020, it sparked backlash from the country's used car sector and the policy was never enforced. The government wanted to ensure that the imported used cars were safe. But at the same time, it didn't want to alienate voters who rely on the used car industry to make a living or to discourage car makers like VW from setting up factories in the country, even though demand for brand new vehicles from car makers like VW is almost non-existent in Ghana. It is still a controversial move to ban these used cars. But if the government wants to protect the country from becoming a dumping site for hazardous vehicles, Adoboy says there is no hiding from it. We should also strengthen our legal regime just as we suffer from it, let's also strengthen our legal regime to ensure that we also do not allow unwholesome products, unwanted products, and you know, to come into our country to create these environmental hazards for us. For DW, I am Isaac Kanleji in Accra, Ghana. As we heard there in that report, although these used cars can be dangerous and polluting, the government in Ghana doesn't seem to have had much success in restricting these imports. But is that even a smart idea? After all, people need the cars and the jobs. And what about the wealthy countries who export these cars in the first place? What responsibility do they have? To answer these questions, I spoke to Festival Godwin Bowaten who grew up in Ghana and is currently a researcher at the Columbia Climate School, specialising in sustainable transport in Africa. Festival spoke to me on the line from New York about how to reform the global used car trade and why bans are the wrong way to go about it. From his perspective, the harm caused by these old cars tends to outweigh the benefits. Yes, 
whilst they you know serve real needs, they support mobility, create ecosystem of livelihoods. They also pose serious you know social environmental harms in terms of pollution, road traffic crashes, and you know other sort of you know problems. And so it's kind of a double edged sword, right? They serve you know some real purposes, but then they also pose a lot of you know social environmental dangers. But replacing these dangerous, dirty old cars with safe and sustainable transport options isn't as easy as just banning car imports from entering the country, Festival says. And this is something that he and his colleagues have been researching at the Columbia Climate School. Dr Jackie Klopp of you know, Columbia um, University Climate School, um, who is my mentor, uh, we, both of us examined this particular question recently in a paper that you know, we published in. Um, general of transport and land use. So we found that if you, when they place the import restrictions, they appear, and appear is the operative word, they appear to result in declines in the quantity of registered youth vehicle imports. So if you put the restrictions there, official statistics will tell you that um, the imports are coming down. But then they don't bring a shift towards new, safer, less polluting vehicles and also shifting you know, people to um, new, safer, and less polluting, or polluting options. The further explanation is this. If you restrict used vehicle supply um, through bans or imposing penalties you know, on their importation, that is in itself does not make it easier for people to be able to buy new ones. The fact that you are restricting the supply, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden, people now have you know, enough income to buy you know, new ones. So one implication is that such restrictions are likely to compel people to keep really old vehicles on the roads, even as they become more dangerous and more polluting than contributing to the safety and pollution problems. Because now they cannot import new used ones because of the restrictions. They don't also have you know, enough um, resources to buy new ones, like fresh brand new vehicles. What you are, the problem you're creating is that you are just compelling them to keep using old cars you know, on the roads. They become more dangerous. They become more polluting. And that may explain why the bans would result in the decline in terms of quantity, but then they would not bring any shift in terms of you know, public health gains, reducing pollution, reducing road traffic crashes, and shifting public you know, attitudes towards buying new ones. The second explanation that we put forward is that it might as well be that, contrary to official statistics, import restrictions do not really re- reduce used vehicle supply. They only redirect them to the black market. They do not address the conditions that make people need old vehicles in the first place. Neither do they offer ways to afford newer, safer, less polluting you know, options. If you impose the bans, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden Guineans have you know, enough money to buy brand new cars. Restricting the supply of used cars, in other words, doesn't reduce the demand for these cars that's there. To do that, Festival says, governments need to offer people other ways of getting around that are affordable and accessible, such as improving public transport, cycling paths, walking paths, helping people to work from home more often, or to work closer to home. So what the Ghana, what we extrapolate from the Ghana experience is that if you really want to reduce used vehicle consumption and social environmental harms, 
you would need more than just restricting supply through import restrictions. And so you need to plan to reduce the need to travel. You have to make public transport, walking, cycling, safer, efficient, and attractive so that people wouldn't even need you know, the cars you know, in, the first, in the first place. So if you really don't tie such intervention to address the demand side of things and just restrict supply, you're only creating you know, more problems for the markets to shift to underground where you are unable to even account for the dynamics that's happening. Those kind of reforms are, of course, largely up to national governments to implement. But Festival says that the wealthy countries exporting these old cars also have a role to play. For example, the kinds of overseas projects that they choose to invest in using international aid, their trade agreements, the number of cars they're manufacturing in the first place, all of these factors have an impact on the used car trade in low-income countries such as Ghana which, as Festival points out, affects the global climate too. And, and the point is that when it comes to climate change and public health, out of sight isn't out of mind. In the end, simply transferring faulty, dirty, unsafe vehicles you know, elsewhere, if you transport it from US to Ghana or wherever, you still undermine you know, global and local goals to move forward in you know, safe and low emissions transport. We all share the same ozone layer. And so the problems you know, affect you know, everyone else. So, from Festival's perspective, what would transport look like in an ideal world? Would this used car trade exist at all? Certainly, they would not um, you know, be, be going for, 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 for such vehicles. Uh, because um, in an ideal world where you know, public transport is viable, efficient, uh, people have you know, alternative means of transport. If you go to Denmark, a lot of people bike. They ride their bicycles because... There are great infrastructure, you know, to support them. Um, their reliance on you know, these vehicles would, you know, dramatically, you know, reduce. So, uh, we, uh, you know, as as I indicated early on, we need to, you know, try to begin planning um, towards, you know, building societies um, that do not, you know, prioritize, you know, motorized, you know, transport or is not motorized transport dependent. And also founded on you know diesel and you know, gas gas and you know, vehicles and things like that. So, you know, planning around these things, you know, more broader concentration of um, you know transportation, you know, fixing public transport systems, changing land use patterns, investing, um, so that people don't um, they, they can live without you know traveling a lot more, uh, would help reduce the dependence on vehicles generally, and in developing countries for um, context used vehicles in particular. That was Festival Godwin Boatin, an expert in sustainable development and transport in Africa, talking to me on the line from New York about reforming the used car trade and why import bans are the wrong way to go about it. Let that
You're listening to Living Planet. I'm Charlie Shield. We'll be back in a moment. They're literally everywhere these days. But whether you like them or not, modern-day life would be impossible without plastics. The growth trajectory of plastics is just, quite frankly, scary. By 2050, we will produce between three to four times as much plastic as we're producing today. But with growing production comes increased pollution. Plastic waste is accumulating in our oceans, rivers and forests at an alarming rate. And microplastics is not just being found in our food and water, but also in our bodies. The idea that microplastics could cross the blood-brain barrier, it's just, it makes you shudder. So in this brand new series, I'll be taking a closer look at how we got here. I really think plastics is a tangible expression of all that is wrong with capitalism. And what's keeping us on the plastic drip? The core underlying fundamental problem to solve in the plastic world is that we live in a world where virgin plastic, new plastic, is cheaper than high-quality recycled plastic. I'll also be exploring some impressive solutions that are on the table to clean up our plastic mess. From filtering microplastics out of water... The process is quite simple. You just add this adsorbent into the water, mix it 100%, remove all of the microplastic happens within one hour to upcycling plastics into ingredients that we can actually eat. I wanted to break that plastic into its constituent um, parts, which we call monomers, and I took one of these monomers and converted it into the compound called vanillin. On the Green Fence's new series on the world's growing plastic problem and solutions. Coming to you wherever you get your podcasts. Now we turn to the Nordics, where a debate about sourcing critical minerals is currently raging. After the Norwegian government announced it wanted to open up the country's continental shelf for deep sea mining. Norway is known as a bit of an environmental contradiction. It has a solid public transport system that's being electrified, and it has one of the highest uptakes of electric cars in the world. But it's also an oil and gas giant with a huge output of fossil fuels. So where does deep sea mineral mining figure in all of this? From the Norwegian capital, Lars Bavanga reports. Norway is often portrayed as a champion of green change. Here in Oslo, there are more electric cars than in any other capital city on Earth. Buses and trams are electric and cycle lanes are popping up at a rate of knots. But all these batteries, solar panels and wind turbines that are needed to drive the green transition all need specific minerals and metals to work. The oceans are a vast source for many of these critical minerals. These resources can secure a low environmental footprint supply compared to terrestrial mines and contribute to reduce the geopolitical supply risk. A promotional video from Norwegian company Luke Marine Minerals. It aims to be at the forefront of what it believes can become a huge new industry deep sea mining. Walter Sognes is the CEO of Luke. He argues Norway should be at the forefront for several reasons. 
we are an ocean nation. We have, through decades now, shown that we could uh, uh, manage um, oil and gas industry in harsh environment. We can manage oil and gas industry together with having a fishing industry and with the highest standard of uh, safety, environmental planning, and so on. So we have all the regulations in place for that, which can be transferred into the deep sea mineral industry. The other one is that we have the technology and the skills, the expertise. We've known for a long time that there are minerals like nickel, cobalt, manganese and copper thousands of metres down on the sea floor. But so far the technology to collect them has not been ready and there is still a debate on how to regulate any harvesting of these resources. Yet last week, Norway's Labour-led coalition government said it wants to open up a vast area in the Barents and Greenland seas for exploration. Now, this decision has been met with universal condemnation from environmental organisations here and elsewhere. I'm on my way now to meet Carolina Andauer, who is head of the Norwegian branch of WWF, the Worldwide Fund for Nature. We condemn the decision. We think it's irresponsible. And I was personally very shocked and frustrated about the Norwegian government, who claims they want to be leading in sustainable ocean management, are making such a short-sighted decision. They argue that we need to find out what is down there and also that these minerals are needed for, not least, for the green transition. All environmental scientists, the Norwegian institutes uh, for environment are all saying the same, that we need more knowledge. So we have to start in the right order. First out, find out how is the ecosystem down there, what kind of impact could you have, and then you consider if deep sea bed mining can happen. At the Ministry of Petroleum and Energy, State Secretary Andreas Bjelland Eriksson from the Labour Party is adamant that Norway has no option but to explore the possibility of deep sea mining. We need to make some really tough decisions uh, as a society. We cannot not look into the opportunity uh, of conducting deep sea mining if that can be done in a sustainable manner. We need to involve private parties together with the government uh, in exploring opportunities, conducting research. Uh, and the only way that we could do that in practice is by conducting an opening process as the first step and then take a step-by-step -step approach going forward. So what does that step-by-step -step process mean in practice? Egil Sjolan is an associate professor at the Department of Geoscience and Petroleum at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. That means that we will start with exploration and the exploration phase will last until we uh, know if there are enough resources to make it uh, economically sustainable then uh, we also have to find out how to do this in a prudent and safe manner. So I wouldn't be surprised if a potential opening for production will be in the yeah, maybe uh, early 30s. Before we open up a huge area, an enormous... Environmentalists like Carolina Andauer argue that this long-term prospect is another reason why deep-sea mining is a non-starter. For the green shift, we need the minerals now, and those you have to find on land. 
where you have proven methods on how you can do it better for the environment and know the consequences. But for deep seabed mining, it's not going to be likely that they are commercial even to 10 to 15 years. The Norwegian Parliament will vote on the government's proposed deep sea mining plans when it reconvenes in October. Until then, the two sides in this debate will continue to argue about how to best achieve a low carbon future without endangering more of our environment. Lars Pavanga, DW, Oslo. For more on the debate about critical mineral mining, be sure to check out our recent Living Planet episode called Can We Have Our Cake and Eat It Too? Featuring an interview with expert Salim Ali, all about decarbonisation and how to sustainably source the critical minerals needed for the green energy transition. That's it for this week's Living Planet. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Living Planet in your podcast app of choice for a new episode every week. And if you've got a moment, we would love to hear what you think. You can leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really makes a difference. And if you'd like more DW Environment content to read, watch and retweet as well as listen to, check out our online content at dw.com environment. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram by searching DW Global Ideas and Environment. We're also on YouTube and TikTok. If you search DW Planet A, you'll find us there. Thanks to Jürgen Kuhn in the studio today. I'm Charlie Shield. Catch you next week for more environment stories from around the world.